Welcome to Sports Spectrum, the sports and faith podcast that brings Jesus back into the conversation. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome everyone to Sports Spectrum. My name is Jason Romano. Great to have you joining us here on the program today. Before we get to our interview with Dan Nolte, the former Major League Baseball pitcher turned pastor, I want to tell you about Sports Spectrum's magazine. Now's the time to get it. $18 for an entire year gets you our four issues, our quarterly magazine with Sports Spectrum. And it has devotionals in it. It has long-form, in-depth interviews on the intersection of sports and faith. We even feature the podcast in the magazine as well as a Q&A from one of our interviews that we've done. So can't encourage you enough to get the Sports Spectrum magazine. It's been around for 30-plus years, still telling stories on the intersection of sports and faith. And what a deal, $18 for an entire year. It gets you our quarterly magazine plus a bonus issue and a welcome magazine welcoming you into the Sports Spectrum family. I think it's just a great gift idea for someone for Christmas. I think it's a great gift idea for, uh, you know, giving someone for a men's ministry or for a youth group, a young person, a teenager who loves sports and goes to church. Man, this is the way to go. Sports Spectrum's magazine, $18. Go to sportspectrum.com and subscribe today. Today's guest on the podcast is Dan Nolte. Dan played in the majors from 1996 to 1999 with the Twins and with the Yankees. He was a member of that 99 World Series championship team with the New York Yankees. Played his college ball at Cal State Fullerton. Pitched in the 1992 College World Series. And Dan is now a pastor at Faith Presbyterian Church in Jenison, Michigan. And Dan, who came from college into the pros in the 14th round of the 1992 Major League Baseball draft has a pretty incredible story and pretty awesome testimony and a lot of layers to his story. This is part one of the two-part podcast that we're going to be featuring. Tomorrow you'll hear part two. And in part one, we talked to him about just the differences between going from a baseball player and a pitcher to being a pastor, growing up in California, what life was like, and certainly for, for Dan... He went through some really traumatic experiences as a kid, uh, abusive experiences, and just not things that kids should have to go through. And Dan talks very openly about that in part one of the podcast. We also talk about his baseball journey and to the point where in the 90s, when he was trying to make it in the major leagues and this tall, skinny kid didn't have enough velocity on his fastball, and he took to the world of steroids. And as many did in the 90s, the steroid era of baseball, if you will, Dan was one of those guys. And Dan very openly talks about that walk as well on the podcast because Dan didn't become a, a Christian until the end of his baseball career going into uh, the early late 90s and early 2000s. And that's an incredible story as well. You'll hear that in part two of the podcast. But in part one, you hear a pretty transparent conversation about dealing with abuse and turning to steroids, among other things that Dan turned to during his days trying to pursue the baseball dream. So let's get to our interview, a very powerful conversation in part one of a two-part conversation with former Major League Baseball pitcher turned pastor Dan Nolte here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Jason, it's good to be with you. Thanks for uh, taking some time with me. 
Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. Uh, a lot, a lot to talk about in your story and your journey and getting to know you a little bit. But before we get to, to that part of it, I have to ask you now, you're a pastor, Faith Presbyterian Church in Jenison, Michigan, and a former big league player, of course. So what's the biggest thing you've learned from your time as a baseball player that you've carried over, if you will, to the world of, of church and being a pastor? Probably the one thing that I've noticed a very direct correlation is just the perseverance of a believer. Um, you know, we're called to persevere, and uh, certainly God's empowering us uh, to do that. Uh, and in my baseball life, I wasn't a Christian, uh, so my efforts were pure, purely human-driven, uh, but it took a lot of perseverance. I mean, if you're going to be a professional athlete, you have a lot of ups and downs, uh, just like being a Christian, um, but you certainly are looking for your uh, power in that sense from different places. As a Christian, certainly I'm looking to the Word of God, uh, looking to Christ through the power of the Spirit versus being a baseball player, that it was strictly through my, what I believed was my own power and for my own desires, my own life, uh, that that's kind of what I did. But nevertheless, there was a lot of perseverance needed in professional sports or, or sports at all, even even at college level, uh, and certainly perseverance as a pastor. Your life as a young kid, I've read, certainly wasn't an easy one. But can you share with us what life was like growing up in California, certainly sports, and maybe even was church and faith a part of that? Just share with us uh, life as a kid growing up in California. Yeah, you know, I think my life wasn't too dissimilar from a lot of kind of middle-class families. You know, we never financially struggled, but my parents got divorced when I was six, uh, and that really kind of created a significant downfall in our family. We were not a churched family at all. Um, I never heard the name of Christ or the need for Christ for salvation, um, and so it really wasn't even a part of our life. And when my parents got divorced, it really shook the foundation of our family. Um, you know, I became, I was kind of raising myself. My mom was, my parents had been married for 25 years. So it's a long time. And so when she got divorced, I think it really debilitated her and, and the sense that her life or her life was kind of functioning around the idea of marriage and when that collapsed, it really took hold of her. And so she was kind of really dealing with her own. And my brother left. It was uh, really a fracturing of our family. And so I just kind of felt found myself very alone. And, and so I played a lot of sports, played outside a lot. You know, I was just, uh, you know, really engaging with my friends uh, and making a lot of bad choices because nobody was there to really help me make good choices. Talking to Dan Nalty here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Dan, as you uh, were growing up in, in, in your teen years and, and you know parents that were divorced, I don't know if the dad uh, void was, was, was in your life or if your dad was in your life, but what kind of mentors or maybe lack of mentors or even the trust that you should and could have of people who were uh, you know, guiding you, coaches, different people, what was that like, you know, through your teen years and the influences that were on your life? Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, I saw my dad. Um, I lived with him at the beginning of my high school years, but he actually had a job uh, in Kuwait, of all places. And so he was gone a lot. And so I was then um, 
I was then taken care of by a baseball coach uh, that was helping me. And unfortunately, that relationship grew into a sexual abuse relationship and or sexually abusive relationship. And so um, that lasted from when I was about 12 to 15. Uh, and unfortunately, at the same time, I was also being sexually abused by one of my former teachers. Um, and so, yeah, I think what I really desired, I think looking back upon that and, and God has really been kind and gracious to me there and, and really had mercy on me in the sense uh, when I got saved, I, I literally became that new man and I, it didn't, it didn't carry on like you would think sexual abuse would carry on in somebody's life. I was very fortunate that the Lord just had mercy on me. And so it's not difficult for me to talk about it. It's, it wasn't, if I went to counseling to make sure I was okay. And, uh, and I did spend quite a bit of time in counseling dealing with the issue, but it really was from my perspective, a, a, a much easier, um, uh, reconciliation than, than maybe some people have. But I was at that age, I was really looking for adult love. Um, and I think that, uh, my parents were absent and my, and these people were present. And so in a very strange way, I sought out love from adults. So I loved what they gave me and I kind of gave them what they needed to kind of continue receiving the love on my end. And obviously that took a little bit of time for me to be older, to be sexually abused um, than a lot of kids. And I think that, you know, oh, by the time I was 15, I realized this was just, I mean, it took me a while, of course, but it was just really wrong. And I was old enough to like pull the plug, which was good. You know, I, I didn't have to endure something because I was a much weaker person or a much younger person. I could actually determine uh, when the relationship would stop. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that was kind of my, I was really, uh, I really wanted to please adults because I really, I had no adults in my life. And so that was a real positive, but for me, it ultimately became kind of really the bait for, you know, wolves to enter the, into the den, if you will, and, and, and take advantage of that desire. And so that, that was an ongoing battle for me. Um, and, but again, like I said, later in life, when I got saved, it, it was really, uh, an astonishing um, reconciliation with what happened and also a real deliverance of the pain that I carried, um, uh, for, for a lot of years. Dan, now that you look back and you're in your, your, we'll say mid to late forties, well, late forties here, uh, and it's been a long time since that occurred. How long did it take you to, to come out and talk about this? And, and was it, was it after you became a Christian, much like you kind of said that you were, you're now okay talking about it, but that's something that a lot of people I know who go through. We saw the the scandal with the Michigan State women in the gymnastics right. scandal, and it took them for many, many years until they could come out and, and talk about it. What was that experience like for you when you were finally able to come out and, and address this and talk about it? Yeah, it's a not, it's it's a good question. It's a question that I get a lot when I do share my testimony um, about because I do share that part of my testimony quite often, especially with young people because they're frightened to say anything. Uh, for me, it didn't come about as a young person. I didn't share that with anybody, so I was very, you know, uh, typical of someone that would hide something they're embarrassed about. Uh, maybe you thought it was your fault, or maybe I thought. Um, 
you know, people would make fun of me or whatever, because then there's a, there's, there was a male and a female abusing me. And so when you're, when you're trying to figure that out, it was just complex. And so it was just easier to bury it, not deal with it. Once I became a believer, um, in my background with baseball, a lot of people were asking me to share my testimony. Uh, and so I would share that part of my testimony, uh, freely, uh, not really recognizing there was a real therapeutic element to talking about it and people asking questions about it. And then that really prompted me to get into some serious counseling about it because I recognized I didn't have very good answers when people were asking me, you know, how I dealt with this or, um, you know, what was my mindset during the time? How did I deal with the pain afterwards and those kinds of things? And I didn't have very good answers to that other than I would almost just kind of give the you know, the very young person's answer when they, when you ask a question, a biblical question, to them, you know, they'll say, Jesus, Bible, you know, and they just throw out something that's Christian, uh, you know, and that was kind of my answer. My answer was Jesus saved me. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I can share this so freely. Uh, I think the harder part was sharing with people that were very close to me. Um, my mom in particular was, you know, of course, extremely distraught that this was happening. Um, and so I think that, uh, yeah, but those testimonies were real therapeutic and it really helped me get into counseling where I could deal with the problem even more. And so that kind of prompted what I said earlier and that, you know, there was a part of me that desired to be loved and, um, and I was willing to give to get. And, and I think that that was obviously extremely backwards and wrong, but as a young person, I didn't know any different. I, you know, and so, that's the way I handled it. And, uh, but fortunately through counseling and things, I could recognize this is why this happened, you know, and, and I had the why figured out. Now I just needed to deal with the, uh, you know, the pain, if there was any deep, uh, kind of PTSD kind of thing, if there was any kind of, uh, run over or, uh, hangover from all this, you know, how do we deal with that? So that's, that's kind of how it came about sharing it. What have you learned now, I guess, uh, and there'll be a lot of what have you learned questions, I guess, in this type of interview, but looking back now, and especially as you talk to other people who've gone through similar circumstances, or even they weren't similar, but they're still the, the common denominator of abuse, what have you been able to uh, discern, I guess, from other people sharing their story in what you went through and seeing that uh, other people have gone through or maybe still are going through the same thing? Yeah, I think the biggest factor uh, between me and a lot of people that I share with, um, I remember California when I shared my testimony at a juvenile hall, or, um, and I think that uh, up, you know everybody's under eighteen, they're all imprisoned, and um, and I think the difference between me and them, I, you know, I can't speak for their heart, of course, and their belief system, but they they were without Christ trying to deal with something. And all their questions to me after I shared my testimony were about the abuse. They didn't care about baseball, money, the lifestyle. Um, they cared about how I got rid of the pain. And I think that that was a great testimony to Christ uh, and Christ entering my life. And so when you know, I really challenged them to consider giving their life to Christ and seeking that counsel, and that would be the the real beginning point of healing when it comes to abuse or just kind of the sinful, the sinful nature of man, of course. And, and part of that is the abuse and, and the struggling of how to let go of those things. And so I was able to essentially say to Christ that 
you have forgiven all my sins, and you you continue to forgive my sins, and so therefore, this is a sin that I'm carrying, I felt like, as an adult, and I wanted to give it to God, and when I gave it to God, He answered that prayer and really took away the pain that, that I had from that, and so that's what I generally noticed in the in the in the young people in prison that day just kind of exemplified most of the people I talk with is they don't understand how to get rid of that deep pain you saw in those testimonies of the women with Michigan State. Um, you know, and and I think that there was uh yeah, and I think there was one woman, I can't remember her name, but she can be very popular in the Christian circles because she was sharing her testimony and her and almost her uh, care for this man and his salvation. And I think that she nailed it. You know, I mean, she nailed essentially what I'm saying to others as well, is that that the way out of this deep-seated, what feels like it's in your DNA pain that will never disappear, the only way out of that is by faith through Christ. Um, I should say by Christ through faith. And uh, that, that is, that's what, delivered me, and that's what I share with others that are in that same boat. Dan Nolte is our guest here on the Sports Spectrum podcast. As you get older, your baseball success begins to take shape, and you play college ball at Cal State Fullerton and eventually get drafted by the Twins in 1992 in the 14th round. Where is your state of mind during these years, both where baseball is sort of, identity is a common word in the Christian culture. Where is identity? Where is you know, your mindset, I guess, as you're pursuing your baseball dream? Yeah, you know, again, my identity was centered on me. Uh, you know, my whole identity was was creating a successful life for myself. And, and that primarily included money at that point only. Uh, so I really desired to be wealthy. The more money you have, the more powerful you are, uh, the more authority you have, the more success you'll have, the better life you'll live. And so I believe that. I mean, it made sense to me from a practical standpoint. You know, I uh, watched other people with money, had nice homes and nice cars and seemingly a nice life. And so I kind of followed that pattern. And because baseball can make you a lot of money, that was seemingly a great place to begin. And however, uh, once I got into minor league baseball, uh, I realized the first couple of nights watching these games that, you know, I was suddenly in Kenosha, Wisconsin after playing in the college world series. And I'm in this little tiny town playing low, a low, a minor league baseball, uh, after playing in front of 20,000 people in the, you know, in the college world series. Now I'm playing in front of like eight. (laughs) So it was, uh, it was quite a shock, but the thing that I noticed, more than anything was this was serious baseball. This was, I mean, I had the, the leap from college to even low a minor league baseball was a big, big jump. And I realized there's no way that I'm going to be successful at this level at my current, my current velocity. I mean, I associated being, you know, much heavier. And that was essentially the equation that is usually correct. The stronger and heavier you are, the harder you're going to throw a baseball. So long as that, so long as the heaviness is coming from muscle, your velocity is going to go up. Uh, so I only threw in college. I mean, I might have hit 88 on the radar gun a couple of times the whole year. I was not a hard thrower in college. Uh, and so I realized very quickly that, that something needed to happen for me to, to gain a substantial amount of weight. I'm 6'6", so that 
I had a lot of room to pack weight on. And so that's what I need to figure out when I, when I got home. But I knew if I didn't do something, I was going to be out of baseball very quickly because these guys were really good. And you did something, and, and I think that's pretty documented, pretty well documented, and you went to that world of steroids. So tell us about the decision. Obviously, you kind of shared why uh, you wanted to get bigger, and obviously the intention is to get bigger and, and prolong your baseball career, but take us to the moment where you start to explore that route. Yeah, it wasn't very difficult for me. Uh, again, I had uh, no moral compass. Uh, anything was in play, and so – you know, my life of uh, promiscuity began at that point. Uh, alcohol began at that point. Um, and then steroids was, was the obvious professional choice for me. Uh, I, there was no way I felt there was no way I was ever going to gain weight without something to help me. So I had a friend who had a friend and uh, he was a kind of small time kind of bodybuilder, if you will. He wasn't like professional or anything. He just knew a lot about weightlifting and, and knew a lot about the drugs. And at least I thought he knew a lot about drugs in hindsight. He didn't know anything about it, but, uh, and so I just began, it wasn't a difficult decision for me at all. And I immediately started gaining weight, which was like, I mean, it was in a, <laughs> in a sort of Christian sense, praise the Lord, you know, cause I just said, I was so thankful that I finally started to gain weight. Uh, and I gained it quickly. And over the next uh, six years, I remained on a, a heavy regiment of steroids uh, throughout the off season. And then during the season, I wouldn't take anything. Um, but over that time, I gained, uh, uh, let's see, I left college at about 185 pounds. And I stopped using steroids when I was 245. So I gained 60 pounds. Wow. So obviously people are noticing a difference, right? And then, you know, you have to kind of answer to them <laughs> what the difference is. Yeah, I think that I think that when you're in that world of professional sports, they want to see they want to see constant improvement. Consistency on the field and but also a constant improvement so that you can climb the ladder towards towards the big leagues. Uh so you have to go through rookie ball, low A, high A, double A, triple A, then you get to the big leagues. So there's a lot of thought of steps you have to go through and kind of prove yourself at each level that you can dominate that level so that you can go into the next level. And so as my weight increased, my velocity was going up dramatically. Um and so I went from throwing eighty seven in college to throwing, you know, ninety four to ninety six in the big leagues. So, I mean, that's just like, it's unheard of. I mean, you know, it's all, it's impossible for that to actually happen without obviously the drugs. So I'm sure people were very aware that I was doing something, um, but it was, it was kind of the, the mentality was, you know, in, in a joking, but real sense, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And that was, that was very much a, a motto um, that, that I heard regularly. And, uh, and then on top of that, when you start gaining weight, um, and everybody wants you to gain weight, all you're getting is praise, 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 praise for, for doing something that seemingly was so difficult. So I had everybody patting me on the back, telling me how great I look and how everything was getting better. And, and so it was just an easy decision for me to keep going because the more I gained, the more velocity I increased, the more people would, the more people in the organization, the Minnesota Twins organization would just keep telling me. 
man, you look so good. Your velocity is going up. This is great. And then on top of that, on-field performance was increasing as well. So I was seeing the benefit of all of this. And then, you know, the big leagues was becoming more a reality for me uh, if I could continue success. And so that meant keep taking the drugs because if I stop taking the drugs, I'm not going to be successful. It was almost a bottom line type of situation, right? It was a business decision in so many ways because you're trying to be quote unquote successful. Uh, but obviously the success with success comes money and power and all of those things, the prestige of being a big league player. So doing the steroids for you, was it almost in a way it, it was a business decision, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was absolutely a business decision. My, my, my choices were all driven by money. Um, and, and with my, and with my, my body, uh, I was obviously very uncomfortable with how I looked and with the weight also came attraction from females. And so that, that was also a big, it became a major, major part of my life was that, you know, promiscuity was really something that became, you know, dominant in my life as dominant as steroids were and alcohol were, you know, my nightlife became a very important part of my life. So, um, you know, I think that those two things I saw, I didn't really, I didn't think about the, the women thing necessarily at the beginning. It would be nice to go to the beach. I always used to think and be able to take my shirt off without being so embarrassed. Uh, and I think that, um, and, the, and so the steroids were helping at multi levels, but the primary reason I took it was, as you said, a pure business decision that I knew I was never going to play uh, professional baseball if I didn't, excuse me, do something drastic to change my, my weight and my, and subsequently my velocity. Was it something that was talked about? You know, I, I, I worked at ESPN for many years and we did tons of stories on the steroids uh, era of the nineties and Balco and all of those things. We talked about uh, those stories at length at ESPN, but I always wonder from a player perspective, was it something that was talked about at all? Or was it sort of the, the um, I don't know, the, the secret that everybody knew about, but didn't say anything about? But I think stories have come out, uh, you know, after the steroid era where people, players were associating with one another, um, you know, with A-Rod, for example, and those guys were apparently were talking openly about that with certain players. Um, in my, in my circles, nobody talked about the use of drugs, um, until I had a couple of conversations with a couple of guys where I actually brought it up and, and, you know, Hey, are you, do you do any, do you do any drugs in the off season to help you? And, you know, that's kind of, it was kind of shadowy, you know, I mean, it, we didn't talk openly about it for sure. Um, again, there were mottos that ran around. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Also, you'd hear oftentimes before the games, you know, take them if you've got them. And what that means is that you, that's when I became addicted to amphetamines, uh, because, uh, speed was prevalent in baseball prior to me and, and after me as well. And because I was a, because I was taking now amphetamines and, and addicted to those, I became an alcoholic because I couldn't sleep. So I needed to drink enough to go to sleep. And so this was the cycle I was on, amphetamines, alcohol, steroids, and that's just the way it went. And then the, throw the nightlife into it. I mean, it really was a very destructive, a destructive life. I mean, I was literally destroying myself all while thinking that I am succeeding. 
It's been 20 to 25 years now. Uh, I'll get, I'll guess I'll ask the generic question from a baseball perspective as a fan, you know, you see so many guys now who are up for the hall of fame and, you know, people who played during these eras and they're not getting in. I just wonder how, how as a player who walked through that, do you think fans should look back at that time? And even, I guess, uh, reporters and people in the media, because the media, they're fans too. They may not think they are, but they are. How should we look back at that time? Should we just appreciate the success that was had? You know, the teams that you played on, that 99 Yankees team was so good. Should we just appreciate that they were good for their time? Or should there be a, a taint or, you know, a, uh, you know, the asterisk that a lot of people talk about? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, it's, I, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, and, and you know, condemn like my team in 99, or I should say their team, and I was on it. I mean, it, you know, they were, you know, these guys were, it was an all-star team. I mean, it, it, I, I don't know how I was on the team to begin with, but I mean, I think that it really was just an all-star team. So I would hate to condemn all of them because of my bad choices. Um, and I think that that's the dilemma, you know, how, how, who do you, how do you know if somebody actually used or didn't use, uh, is amphetamines any more, um, substantial in that discussion than steroids? I mean, I know steroids really, really impacted the numbers and the home runs and all of that stuff. I mean, I was right in the whole middle of the whole Sosa McGuire thing and, you know, I was pitching to these guys. So, I mean, it was it was exciting and fun, uh, but also frightening to death that this guy's going <laughs> to launch a 700 foot home run off me. So, um, but I think that, uh, you know, it, that's the problem. I mean, you're, you're tapping on the problem. The problem is that a, a chosen number of people chose to cheat. And because of that, now you have this tainted view of the entire era, which is really, un, really unfair, of course, to all the guys that didn't use. And, and so I think for the hall of fame, I, you know, my, my feeling on for the hall of fame is that, you know, if you used, I don't, I don't see how you could enter them into the hall of fame being a known kind of convicted cheater of something that was, but again, you have to ask the same question about amphetamines. I'm telling you, those things can make you run through a wall and run, keep running through walls after wall after wall, because they are so and the combination of steroids and amphetamines makes you a, makes you a machine. I mean, it literally makes you a machine. And I think that, so it's hard, it's hard because you don't know who took what. And I think that that's where kind of the baseball writers and, and maybe the media are kind of drifting in that direction to say that all we can do is judge them based on what hall of fame numbers should be. And if, and if they were convicted, maybe, you know, if, if they were found guilty of using drugs, uh, then, you know, maybe we keep them out, but you can't do it based on the fact that you think somebody took something because that's, that's just, it's very, it's just very difficult. And so, yeah, and, and, and you can't throw out the whole era either. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing. Um, certainly we have historically, it will go down as the steroid era because so many guys were using. And so, and I'm, and I'm sorry for that. I, I do feel I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of that, that I contributed to tainting an entire era of um, and, and it's the only one like it, as far as I know, in the sense where there was, you know, widespread drug use. And then we actually labeled an era of baseball with a, with a label. 
Um, now there may be others. I'm not a, I'm not a great baseball historian. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's the, that's the dilemma. And I think that's the dilemma that all these baseball writers are, are trying to deal with as they vote for guys that are, uh, entering the hall of fame. That was Dan Nalty. Part one of our conversation with Dan, the former major league baseball pitcher, now pastor at faith Presbyterian church in Jenison, Michigan. And tomorrow on part two, he shares one of the more powerful testimonies I've heard of coming to faith in Christ. And for Dan, it took winning the World Series with the New York Yankees and ironically winning the World Series and reaching his lowest point in many ways of his life to coming around, turning around, and then having that amazing redemption story of coming to faith in Christ. So don't miss that story tomorrow on the podcast. It's unbelievable. And then Dan also talks about the Mitchell Report. If you remember, if you're a baseball fan or a sports fan, the Mitchell Report came out around 2007, 2008, and it detailed uh, all of the players that had uh, done some form of steroids in baseball. And Dan was one of the few people who actually talked to George Mitchell and the people gathering information on the Mitchell Report and confessed and told him everything, just like he did with us here in part one of the podcast. So I asked him about the Mitchell Report and his experiences with that. And it it was interesting to hear his side of what happened because it really opened up a platform and an opportunity for him to talk about his faith by talking about his past sins, his past struggles uh, with alcohol abuse, with drug abuse, with steroids, with amphetamines, all of that. So part two of our conversation coming tomorrow with Dan Nolte here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to you for listening to this episode. Again, we always want to encourage you to go to sportspectrum.com where you can find all of our content, including a daily devotional, articles every single day on the intersection of sports and faith, and an opportunity for you to become a subscriber to the Sports Spectrum magazine. $18 for an entire year, and you become a member of the family. You get our quarterly magazine, which is just a really awesome periodical, a really great magazine, great stories on the intersection of sports and faith. And the design is just wonderful from our folks, Aaron and John. They do a great job with the magazine. So I can't encourage you enough. Subscribe to the Sports Spectrum magazine. It's 18 bucks for the entire year. It makes a great gift idea. If you're still looking for something to give to someone for Christmas or for the holiday season coming up, maybe a birthday coming up in the new year, Sports Spectrums Magazine is what I was what I would suggest. 18 bucks for an entire year. You can subscribe over at sportspectrum.com. Listen tomorrow for part 2 of our conversation with Dan Nolte, the former MLB pitcher turned pastor here on the Sports Spectrum podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great rest of your day. This is Sports Spectrum.